I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We will be in the 26th chapter of Matthew this evening. I'm going to read an extended section of Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Uh, but we are going to focus our attention almost exclusively on verse 38. With God's word open, let's pray now and ask for his help this evening. Heavenly Father, we come before you again today in the name of your Son, confident that you hear us and that it is your desire, your intention, that we should see and know our Savior more through time with him in his word. And so we ask that you would do that for us this evening, Lord. Would you open our eyes that we might understand your word and open your word, uh, open us to your word that we might be changed by it. We ask that you would show us Christ in the fullness of his glory, even as we see him in the shadow of his suffering this evening. Lord, it's for us that he suffered, and we would do well to spend time meditating on this reality tonight, and I ask God that you would give words to say and ears to hear that each of us would have a fresh reckoning with Christ and what he experienced on our behalf, that we would love him more as we know him more, in turn causing us to seek to live lives that obey him more. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen. Looking at Matthew 26 now, beginning at verse 36, this is the word of God. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. It's interesting to me to consider how confusion over the person of Christ has changed throughout the centuries, often with different people in different places thinking different things wrongly about Christ. That may sound confusing. Let me give you an example. 
in the Apostle John's day, the Docetists denied the humanity of Jesus, believing that he merely appeared to have a body. We can see this. Turn with me to the book of 1 John for just a moment. In 1 John, John is writing against some of this Gnostic teaching concerning the the material versus immaterial and the person of Christ and so forth. And in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 2, John says these words. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You see, John's dealing with people who claimed that Jesus didn't actually come on in the flesh. He just appeared to be in the flesh, and it wasn't actually a man uh, that was joined to the nature of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in John's day, the Docetists are claiming that Jesus' divinity, yeah, no problem. We got no problem with that. But the humanity, that's, that's too far. We don't, we don't acknowledge the humanity of Jesus. And so they functionally denied the full personhood of the Son of God. Now, however, in our day, those outside the church don't really have a problem with Jesus' humanity, do they? Oh, sure. Great moral teacher, historical figure, uh, good example for people. It's the deity of Christ that's denied by people outside in the world. Yes? We, we know that people will, uh, will refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is indeed the Son of God incarnate. God who took on flesh. And so things have kind of switched over the centuries. Interestingly, however, it's within the church now that we find Christ's humanity is often ignored or given second seat to his divinity. We do talk quite a bit about the divinity of Christ, and rightly so. We need to acknowledge the fullness of God dwelling in him bodily. We need to believe completely in the reality of the union of the two natures in one person. That Jesus is truly God and truly man. The confession that we're reading through right now. The Athanasian Creed and and others that we confess here at our church regularly affirm this reality. And so it's important for us to affirm the divinity of Christ. But we do that sometimes at the expense of spending time wrestling with the humanity of Christ and its significance for us as humans. There's an important relationship that exists between our Savior and us. He is able to sympathize with us because he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. And so the Gospels are very plain in their expression of Christ's humanity. We read of Jesus being tired, Jesus being hungry, Jesus demonstrating emotion at the uh, tomb of Lazarus, for example. And in this passage, perhaps more than in any other passage, in Matthew chapter 26 and the parallels in Mark and Luke, we come to a text that is full of Christ's humanity. It's a passage that shouts to us of the fullness of his suffering in the flesh for our sins. It's a passage that gets far too little press, perhaps an Easter sermon here or there, but deserves our attention and deep interest, our meditation And what we'll see today, tonight, is that it requires some of our sanctified imagination as well. J.C. Ryle says that this is a passage which undoubtedly contains deep and mysterious things. We ought to read it with reverence and wonder, 
for there is much in it which we cannot fully comprehend. Hugh Martin adds, in confining our attention at present to the consideration of the sorrow of the Lord, which is what we see in this text, we ought to feel that we specially require the spirit of the Lord to rest upon us, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, that we may not irreverently intrude where angels might tremble to advance or gaze with presumption excuse me, with presumptuous eyes where angels might veil their faces with their wings. These are heavy words outlining the posture with which we should approach a text like this. It's one of those texts that I like to refer to as a text that makes you want to take your shoes off. Think about Moses seeing the burning bush and as he approaches, what does the Lord say? Moses, stop and take the sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, is one of the holiest places in Scripture. Not to overwhelm you uh, with the demand for attention and reverence and what I believe will be a, a, a call to worship in this text. It is about suffering. It's about Jesus' sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sorrow in the shadow of the cross, in fact. And I want us to see things about the sorrow of Jesus in Gethsemane and consider how these things inform our own experiences of sorrow in our human lives, in our human experience. But I also want to ensure that as we move through this text, you take special care to note how each of these things serves to highlight, to amplify and magnify Christ's love for you. For his suffering is indissolubly linked with his love for you. Let me say that again. As we move through this text, focusing on the aspects of Christ's suffering, especially as they're seen in verse 38, I don't want you to miss the vital connection between his sorrow on your behalf and his love for you. Because those two things are indissolubly linked. Notice, first of all, we see that Christ's sorrow is like, unlike any other sorrow. When we come to Jesus here in the garden, we know that he's recently celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. He's told Peter about his denial. And then they've left the upper room and sang hymns together and crossed the Kidron Valley and moved over to the Garden of Gethsemane on the east side of Jerusalem. What Jesus is about to experience here goes beyond any suffering or any sorrow that you and I could possibly comprehend. This is what I mean when I say we need to use our sanctified imaginations this evening. You know, you and I sometimes use the term, or you've heard the term used before, the anticipation is killing me. You've heard that before? Perhaps you've used that phrase uh, with uh, excitement about an upcoming movie release that you're very excited for, or perhaps when you were younger, the upcoming birthday or Christmas for some of you teenagers, that those days leading up to getting your driver's license, the anticipation is killing me. Or perhaps if you're among some of our more... Um, nervous at the doctor's office crowd you know that the worst part of getting a blood draw or a shot is just waiting for the needle to break the skin right the anticipation part is the worst and it's killing me i know you know what i mean but it's not really true is it i mean it's kind of a throwaway phrase for us it really just means i'm kind of nervous or i'm really excited about what's coming 
But in Jesus' case here, if he were to say the anticipation of the cross is killing me, he would be speaking honestly. Look at the language that he uses here. Uh, the, Matthew tells us that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then Jesus himself speaks in verse 38. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death, he says. Even to death. The sorrow of Jesus anticipating the reality of the cross becoming his own personal experience caused him to be sorrowful even unto death. The anticipation was really killing him. Luke recounts for us in his explanation of the garden scene that Jesus was sweating great drops as like blood. Now don't forget, what did we read um, this, even, or this morning in our scripture reading passage in John chapter 18? It was cold that night and the guards had started a charcoal fire to warm themselves. You remember that? And yet here's Jesus sweating like great drops of blood in anticipation of his pending death. Now, we're going to come back to that because we need to be careful that we don't mistakenly think that what Jesus is really nervous about is the hammer and the nails or the rough wood of the cross or even the mockery of the crowd because that's not what's going on here. His soul was filled with grief, the text says. Unto death, Jesus says. The old King James says that he was sore amazed as he considered what was to come. This is emotional language. This is human language. Jesus in his humanity is facing the struggle of sorrow and fear and uh, anxious anticipation for what's to come. But there's something that separates Jesus in this text from you and me. You know, if you're one of those people who doesn't like conflict, which I, I hope that you don't like conflict, I should say that, uh, but perhaps you have an exceptional aversion to conflict, and you know that when you're about to sit down with that person that you've had friction with, there's that, feel, that butterfly feeling in your stomach, that heart-racing feeling in your chest, that nervousness about the, the encounter you're about to have with that person. Or perhaps you've been asked to counsel someone who's going through something very difficult, perhaps a sin, struggle, or grief. And you think, I'm ill-equipped for this, and your heart races, and you spend time nervously thinking through, what will I say, and how will it go? That's, that's a normal response for us as people, isn't it? To have a sort of nervous anticipation, a sort of uh, anxiety, an emotional charge in light of a pending difficult situation. But what separates Jesus from you and me here in this text is that his sorrow is not nervousness about the cross. He's resolved in his mind to do what the Father sent him to do. The sorrow that Jesus is experiencing is an anticipation of the full weight of God's wrath being poured out on him. Our sorrow is in full realization that Christ has borne that wrath. When you and I experience suffering in this life and we have sorrowful seasons in our life, we do so under the reality that Christ has borne the wrath of God and that's not what's going on in our lives. 
All that remains for us is a vast ocean of God's love for us. But as Jesus anticipates the cross, as he thinks in his mind and contemplates the experience that he will have hanging there on the cross, not the betrayal, not the kiss from Judas, not the mock trial, not the beating, not the lacerations across his back, not the nails in his hands, not even death, but the wrath of God poured out on Jesus, the innocent son, for your sins and for mine causes him great trouble in his soul. There has never been sorrow like his. As the great hymn asks, was there ever grief like his? And the answer, of course, is no. Unlike you and me, when we consider our sin, when we consider our sin, when we feel the weight of guilt and shame, it pales in comparison to the weight that Jesus felt when bearing our sin and shame. And the reason is because you and I in our finiteness and our limitedness don't fully grasp what the wrath of God means. We don't fully appreciate what the holiness of God means. And so when we sin against him, we often respond to our sins against God the way we want other people to respond in their sins against us. And we humanize God. We bring him down, and so our sins are sort of muted in light of the way that we think about God in a limited way. We don't comprehend the immensity and enormity and power and perfection of God. Children, when you dishonor your parents, you think to yourself, well, they're being stupid. They're being foolish, and I don't like this. You have no idea that in your dishonoring and talking back to and sassing your parents and disobeying them, you are offending the very nature and law of the holy, holy, holy God of the universe. And parents, when you're harsh and unkind with your children, you don't realize that you're doing the same thing. Husbands, when we speak unkindly to our wives or treat them with disrespect or fail to show love and compassion to them, we're offending the God of the universe. Wives, when you deny your husbands the respect that God calls you to give to them and you excuse it because they make silly decisions from time to time and you don't feel obligated to sit underneath their authority in Christ, you offend a holy, holy God. And we never think in these terms. Sometimes we feel guilty or sometimes we feel ashamed of our sin. But do we look at our sin in light of who God is or simply in light of how we feel about having sinned? Jesus, on the other hand, in his experience of sorrow in Gethsemane, is sorrowful unto death because he knows full well the total reality of what each of those sins will cost him. The full weight of God's wrath poured out on his head, hear me now, for your sin, not his. For my sin, not his. Our finiteness in this sense is somewhat of a blessing. R.C. Sproul once said, if I suddenly became fully aware of my sin, I would run from this room screaming and crying, never to be seen again. And this is only a glimpse of what Jesus is experiencing for us. Donald McLeod says of Christ's suffering that his cries of agony 
excuse me, our cries of agony are never as bewildered as his. Our darkness is never as intense as his. Because Jesus was truly a man, and in the fullness of his manhood, without all the cumbrances of sin, he was fully aware, fully cognizant, fully intellectually ascended to the reality of who God is and what the cost of our sin was going to be on his person. We only experience things in part due to our inability to know or grasp or comprehend or handle them. Jesus knew what wrath was in total, and he absorbed it for you and for me. There was never sorrow like his, never grief like his. John Calvin asked the question, if there was only one sinner, can we even imagine what the wrath of God would have been like for Jesus? If there was only one sinner, can we even imagine what the wrath of God would have been like for Jesus? We confess that each one of our sins deserves an eternity of separation from God and an outpouring of his righteous wrath in hell. Just one. Every one of our sins deserves God's righteous judgment for all eternity. Our debt to him is such that we cannot repay it with all the days of all time forever and ever. And Jesus bears the eternity of God's wrath your hell and mine for all of our sins at the same time on the cross. And he is experiencing now the sorrow in anticipation of that reality. Now, hear me now, please. Jesus is not being dragged, kicking and screaming into the Garden of Gethsemane, nor will he be at the cross. Jesus does this for you and for me out of his eternal love and commitment to do so. He set his affections on you before the world was made. He ordained for you to be justified by his saving blood before creation was accomplished. He planned from eternity past with the Father and the Spirit to redeem those whom he had designated for his own people in his own place under his own rule. And so Jesus does not come to the garden kicking and screaming, Jesus does not go to the cross kicking and screaming. Rather, we read his words in John 10. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I'm doing this on my own. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So don't miss this. In Jesus' sorrow and suffering on behalf of your sins, it is not absent of his immense and eternal love for you. As I said earlier, his sorrow for you is indissolubly linked with his love for you. And so as we read of Christ's incredible sorrow, the sorrow which no other person has ever experienced, we're reminded in equal measure of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, a love that no other person has ever demonstrated. God's love for us in this passage is overwhelming to the same degree that the sorrow that Jesus felt was overwhelming. If Jesus can say, my soul is sorrowful even unto death, we can respond by saying, my soul is overjoyed even unto eternal life because of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. What has him 
so troubled in this verse is that he knows the weight of your sin and mine. Hugh Martin again says, sin imputed to a holy one must produce effects directly reverse of righteousness imputed to a sinner. Now, what does Martin mean by that? He means that the exchange that occurs at the cross, which Jesus is anticipating here in this text as he stands in the shadow of Calvary, the exchange that will occur at the cross of our sins being imputed to him and by the same logic his righteousness being imputed to us, the weight and sorrow with which he experiences that exchange ought to be matched by the weight of exceeding joy that we experience at that exchange. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think of your salvation in terms of overwhelming joy and thankfulness? Jesus thinks in terms of the exchange, in terms of overwhelming sorrow and grief because of what he's taking from you. My friends, how much greater should our appreciation and thankfulness and love for the imputed righteousness of Christ be in light of this passage? We're getting what we don't deserve as he gets what he doesn't deserve. We're getting what he deserves as he gets what we deserve. The exchange should be far more parallel than it tends to be in our real experience, wouldn't you say? Our sins are grotesque to us. We grieve over them and hate them. There is shame that accompanies sin, yet only in part because we are unable to fully grasp who God is in his holiness and justice. But since Jesus did, as we receive joy from him in the same way he received grief and shame from us, only his experience of it was unhindered by our sinful limitedness. You've heard, you may have heard it said that Jesus experienced temptation like no other person has. And what do we mean by that? Well, at some point, we give in to temptation. And so the pressure of it disappears. Um, if you've done push-ups before, more than one, if you've done one, you'll probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you've done several in succession, you'll know that the most difficult part of a push-up is that 90-degree angle in your elbows when they're bent like this. You can rest on the ground, and in fact, you can rest in the upright position for quite a long period of time. And you can go down using gravity, and you can push up using muscle, but holding yourself at the halfway point is the hardest part of a push-up. In fact, it's one of the most uh, useful tools, incentivized tools to use in the military. Doing push-ups is no big deal. Holding halfway, that's pretty tough. You and I, at some point in our sin experience, give in and fall to the ground. Or we are strengthened by the Spirit and we push up away from sin and we lock our elbows out and we use our bone structure to help support us against the, the pull of sin. Jesus spent his entire earthly life in the halfway position, being tempted, being drawn by Satan's wiles, being threatened by Satan to upend his earthly ministry. And here his sorrow is like unto that, where he is in that halfway position, feeling the full weight of God's wrath on him, for our sins, unhindered by the limits of a sinful or incomplete mind. His sorrow is not a shadow of sorrow 
The sorrow he experiences is the fullness of the wrath of God. Because he knows what's coming. And he's doing it for you and for me. We, we often think in terms of Jesus experiencing suffering like this. We experience the heat of the sun in the shade sometimes. The sun is very hot. It has been lately. And if you stand in the shade, you're still aware of the sun's heat. But the direct rays of the sunlight aren't hitting you because you're in the shade. And so perhaps that's sort of analogous to our experience of God's wrath as we think about it in our finite and limited way. And Jesus' experience, rather, is like standing on a mountaintop in the desert in July, experiencing the full force of the sun's hot rays beating down on his body. And that would be sort of a parallel or an analogy for us to think through the experience of Christ and his sorrow and suffering for our sin. And I would propose to you that that doesn't come close to explaining the difference between our experience of suffering and sorrow in Christ's. Ours is like experiencing the heat of the sun's rays on the hottest day of July, standing in front of an air conditioner. And Jesus' experience is like standing on the surface of the sun and being told to lick it until all the flames go out. Jesus experienced the full weight of God's wrath for sin. And here in the shadow of the cross, in anticipation of what he's going to go through, he does not walk away. He does not give up the plan. He does not relent to sin or temptation. Rather, he fortifies himself with prayer to accomplish the will of God for you and for me. Jesus' sorrow is like no other sorrow. It's often asked why he experienced such grief when many men and women have gone to their deaths with a steeled resolution and not even flinching. How many Christian martyrs have we read about who carried the pile of firewood to their own stake for burning? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was said to have knelt down and prayed as they were tying the noose around his neck. And so peaceful was his disposition that his own guard acknowledged that something was different about this man as he approached death. Jesus was not overcome because he was weak. Jesus is overcome with sorrow and grief because he is suffering under the weight of our sin so that those men and women and you and I would only experience the weight of God's glory. Jesus was going to experience hell. Those martyrs were going to enter heaven. That's the difference. You and I can come to death without fear because All the fear of death was absorbed by Christ in his passion. Jesus in his humanity, Jesus in his humanity in this text shows us also not just what real suffering looks like and means, but how real human companionship is essential in times of great trouble. What a comfort to us that this is true of Jesus. I love uh, insights into the humanity of Jesus like this. Jesus was overcome with emotion, sorrowful and troubled. And so he takes Peter and James and John, his three best friends, and asks them to come with him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just a wonderful insight into the humanity of Jesus? It's easy for you and me to look upon brothers and sisters in Christ and assume that they're weak because they're experiencing great sorrow or trouble. Oh, this person's so needy, we think. They're always asking for help, we think. Always needing counsel. Always wanting to use up my time. 
What we see here is that Jesus is not strengthened by grinding his teeth or even leaning on his divinity, but rather by being nearest to his dearest and best friends. God didn't make us to experience this Christian life in isolation, but rather together with one another. And we see that even Jesus wanted to be with his friends. What did we read earlier in the Gospels? That Jesus called these 12 to be with him. And that from time to time he would say, let's go away, away from the crowds and spend time together. What a wonderful insight into Christ's humanity. He wanted, without any sliver of sinful fear or doubt in his heart, he wanted his friends to be near him in his time of trouble. He wanted them to come alongside and watch with him, for there, true, there is true comfort in the company of brothers and sisters in Christ. We should never be afraid of our need for companionship, and it's a shame that in our current culture, we're made to feel guilty of needing others, especially, might I say, among men. We're made to feel guilty of asking for help, asking for comfort, asking for someone to talk to. Rather, like Christ, we should be willing and eager to look for, to others for support in our time of need. Jesus doesn't approach this great sorrowful experience all on his own, although he accomplishes it all on his own. Don't miss the fact that he goes that extra st stone's throw away to pray by himself. And in fact, all will abandon him, so he alone is evidence to be the one and only Savior of the world. That Jesus himself alone accomplishes our salvation. But in his time of sorrow and trouble, he asks for his best friends to stay near him. And we live in a world that makes men feel weak for doing the same thing. You young men who are growing up through your high school years or perhaps recently graduated, preparing to go off to college, I implore you to surround yourself with good and godly friends that you can turn to in times of trouble. Ask for help. Share your deepest emotions and fears and needs with. Seek comfort from their fellowship and friendship and wisdom. Look to men older than you and your peers and ask them for the sort of companionship and friendship that will serve you in times of trouble. There is an epidemic of depression and suicide in our world and even in the church because men and women and children don't go to one another and ask for help. We believe it makes us weak or at least look weak. Jesus was not weak. When he was experiencing the moments of his greatest sorrow and anxiety, he turned to those closest to him for fellowship and comfort. Jesus was truly human. He's experiencing the greatest trial a man has ever known, enduring suffering no person has ever endured, feeling sorrow like no man has ever felt sorrow before. The grief that he's experiencing far exceeds anything that we've ever experienced. And in those moments, he doesn't just recite to himself a number of Bible verses that he'd memorized, however important that may be. He doesn't only spend time in prayer with the Father, although he does. He goes to his companions. He goes to the church, to the body, for comfort and fellowship and strength. This is what we exist for. 
to come alongside one another and minister to the needs of each other, to serve one another in times of difficulty and trial. And I want to caution against the idea that the reason that I don't get involved in other people's lives too much is because they don't ask me to. There's the, we sort of excuse ourselves from investing in and asking tough questions of the lives of people around us because we don't want to hear it or we're afraid we're not going to be able to handle it or do anything to help. But sometimes just simply asking the question is the start of the most important conversation you can have. And so I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters here at Christ Covenant Church, to be involved in one another's lives, to know each other well enough to see pain and sorrow on each other's faces, to not have to wait for someone to come to you and say, I need help, but to go to them and say, are you okay? And for those of you who are struggling and suffering, to be willing, not only willing, but eager to go to others in the community of faith, in the covenant community here, and ask for the same sort of support that we see Christ asking his friends for. Would you just come and watch with me? I'm really sorrowful. Jesus in his humanity shows us the value, the significance of friendship in the Christian life. And ultimately, at the end of this verse here, we see that to uphold him through it all, Jesus does, in fact, turn to prayer as a lifeline to obedient submission to God's will. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he simply tells his three friends uh, to watch here with me. But in the parallel passage in Luke uh, chapter 22, Jesus says that he wants them to pray with him. He wants them to pray with him. He didn't only need to pray by himself, but he needed the prayers of his brothers in Christ. Well, his brothers here, in this case, the disciples, uh, his friends. But you and I, in the same way, we don't only need to pray by ourselves. We need the prayer and support of our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Some of us in our suffering, we fail on our own accord to pray to God and to cry out to him for strength. Perhaps because we secretly want to believe that we can handle everything ourselves. But if the Son of God himself, who was himself a man of prayer, needed to cry out to God in order to be strengthened by the Father, how much more do you and I need prayer in our moments of deep sorrow and great suffering? It should be our default response. It should be our default response to ask God for help, to pray to him for mercy, to beseech him for strength, to pray that his spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might see and know and believe the promises of God that he's made. And this is what we see Jesus do in this text. He goes ahead to pray, and in fact, he asks his disciples who are there with him to pray alongside of him. Let us never imagine that God does not understand what we are going through in our moments of greatest trial. When the author to the Hebrews says that he experienced temptation in every way like us, yet without sin, and he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness, he's talking about the garden, among other things. He's talking about Jesus experiencing anxiety and sorrow, troubled in his soul unto death. That Jesus is in need in his humanity of the companionship and fellowship of his friends. That Jesus is in need of the strengthening of the Father through prayer. He knows exactly 
what we're going through when we're suffering. Exactly. And more. When we pray to him and ask him to strengthen us according to our need, and we say, Lord, I'm overwhelmed and overcome by difficulties, he says, I know. I remember that. When we say, Lord, my best friend has abandoned me and turned his back on me, and I don't understand that I did nothing deserve to deserve this sort of poor treatment by someone who I thought was one of my friends, he goes, oh, I know. I remember that. When you say, Lord, I'm overwhelmed with guilt and grief. My sin is always before me, and I hate it so much, and I just feel like I'm a, I'm a loser. I can't accomplish anything for you, and my sin, just the weight of it and the, the, the sorrow of my sin is too much for me to bear. I hate it, and I'm struggling. And he goes, I know that feeling. I remember bearing all those sins for you. When you say, Lord, I'm experiencing injustice at the hand of others my spouse treats me poorly and as much as i try to do things right i'm never good enough or my parents are always hard on me as much as i try to do things right it's never good enough or my children never respect me or listen to me as much as i try to give them what they want they always disrespect me and i just don't understand why every relationship that i'm a part of or every situation that i'm in or every circumstance that i experience seems to be difficult and he says i know exactly what that's like Don't think for a moment that God does not understand in our humanity what it's like to live life in this fallen and sinful world. Jesus himself experienced suffering like no other. He's able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he experienced all that we could possibly experience to its fullest extent. When we face trials and suffering in this life, we must look to the Garden of Gethsemane to see Jesus falling down on his face and crying out to his Father for strength and then ultimately submitting himself to the Father's will. By the way, this is the second time a major critical event in the history of redemption takes place in a garden. In the first one, The first Adam failed in disobedient rebellion. And in the second one, the second Adam was obedient and succeeded in spite of the greatest sorrow the world has ever known. If we simply attempt to buckle down and make it through on our own resources, utilizing our own knowledge and believing in our own uh, ability, we will fail. But we don't have to. Because of this scene... And the following events in the life and death of Jesus Christ, we have the very Spirit of God living in us. We cry out to the Father through the Son by the Spirit with the same confidence that God hears us in our moment of weakness that Jesus had when he fell on his face and prayed in the garden. Christ experienced sorrow in the shadow of the cross, so we might only experience sorrow in light of the resurrection. What a wonderful scene of Christ's humanity and his love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son's passion. For the experience that he had from the garden all the way to the cross. 
It's appalling to us, Lord, to think for a moment that he experienced all of this on our behalf, but we're overwhelmed with joy and gratitude because we know that if we had to experience but one drop of it, we would be doomed forever. Thank you that he took our grief and shame in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. Thank you that he shows us what it means to be truly human, to be reliant on prayer for obedience to your will and comfort in times of trouble, to need human relationship and companionship for flourishing in this life. Lord, would you cause us to think more like him in this church, that we might be a people who are quick to come around one another in times of difficulty, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, that we wouldn't be so stubborn and prideful that we wouldn't call out for help either to you or to those around us in our time of need. Ultimately, Lord, we thank you for your son's death on the cross for our sins, wherein he paid the penalty that we could never pay and gave us the righteousness that we could never earn, that we might become sons of God, sons and daughters of God. We thank you for all this in his name. Amen.